Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. some of the dynamics that we see right now and well-timed to speak with Bharat Maramamurti, uh, National Economic Council Deputy Director. And what is so important here is his experience for the democratic politics of this nation and working with committees as well. Bharat, I've got to go right to your work with Senator Warren years ago and the tax, the tax frenzy the media has right now and the reality of the committee process. How will the Biden administration work with the committees in this modern politics. Sure. So the, the president has laid out a tax agenda during the campaign. It involved uh, higher taxes on big corporations, multinational corporations, uh, taxes that tax changes that were intended to drive more investment into the United States rather than abroad, uh, and higher taxes on extremely wealthy individuals, those pe- people making more than $400,000 a year. And so uh, we, we hope to work with Congress to accomplish uh, those goals. Uh, the president's tax plan is intended to make sure that middle class families uh, are, are uh, not paying more than their fair share and that the wealthiest folks who by and large have done quite well over the last several years, including during the last year, uh, are paying a little bit more. Part of our social fabric is the single versus married split. Are you going to play with the social construct of our tax system and particularly joint head of household and single dynamics? No, I don't believe that there's any plans for that. As you as you know, the tax code uh, recognizes that uh, you know different uh, uh, thresholds are warranted depending on whether you're filing as a single person or uh, married. Uh, I don't think that there's any plans to, to fundamentally change any of that. Uh, but as I said, the key here is that uh, the president believes strongly that uh, the biggest corporations and those folks who uh, have done extremely well over the last several decades uh, should pay a bit more. Uh, to finance, uh, to support investments uh, in, in the U.S. economy. Bharat, help me understand this, because something really important is happening down in Washington. You just called anyone earning over 400K extremely wealthy. At the same time, down in Washington, we've decided that a family earning 150000 is deserving of a relief check as well. Are we defining something important here, or are these just numbers plucked out of thin air? Is there a message underlying these numbers? Sure. I mean, the president's view is that, you know, a teacher and uh, a nurse who collectively make, you know, $110,000 deserve relief. And what we've seen in the data is that families with that kind of profile uh, have suffered. I mean, it's important to remember that, according to uh, the latest data, one in seven American families reported going hungry uh, during the pandemic. Uh, There's a lot of need, and it's very widespread need. And and remember, in addition to the fact that the unemployment rate is is elevated, there's also evidence that folks have had to cut back on hours, had to take uh, wage cuts in order to make it through the pandemic. So there's widespread need, and the the economic impact payments, the checks, uh, reflect that. Although there is a difference between 150,000 and 20,000. There is a difference between 150,000 and no income. And this raises a question of whether this is trying to stimulate spending and ignite some sort of economic growth versus plugging a gap and evening out the playing field. Which is it? Well, I think that the the American Rescue Plan, which recently passed, uh, targets money towards those uh, lower income and middle income families. Remember, it's not just the checks. There's an expansion of the child tax credit, which is going to provide Uh, parents with children, uh, additional support. 
Obviously, there's uh, an extension of unemployment insurance, which is obviously targeted at folks uh, who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own. So collectively, what, you, what you've seen and what the objective independent analysis, analyses have shown is that uh, this approach is gonna drive a tremendous amount of support to lower income folks, especially lower income folks with children. And we think that that's appropriate. Remember, uh, this plan is going to cut child poverty in the United States in half. And, and we think that that's one of the, the, the main uh, benefits of it. Is it a goal to make the child tax credit permanent, Bharat? Uh, the president has said that he's interested in looking at that. Obviously, we're not quite at that point yet. We want to make sure that in the short term, uh, all of the, the good relief provisions in the American Rescue Plan actually end up in the pockets of the American people. And so this week and next week, <clears throat> what you're seeing is the administration uh, traveling the country, right. uh, trying to explain to people how they get actually access the relief that they're entitled to under this bill. That's really important. Murat, this is an important question. It's a curiosity for our global Wall Street audience. Day to day, what do you observe in the White House as to how the president takes in his economic advice? What is the Biden method of taking in your wisdom and, for that matter, Secretary Yellen's wisdom? Yeah, so look, this is a very data-driven, uh, empirically-based uh, approach. And you've seen it in the arguments that the president has been making over the last several months about uh, the need uh, to go big in response to this crisis, uh, and the point that the cost of doing too little uh, is, is greater than the cost of doing too much in this situation. Um, and you also see it in the fact that the president has said um, that it's totally reasonable and the right thing to do economically uh, to deficit finance uh, this relief plan, because uh, in the long term, the cost of not providing this relief and letting the economy stagnate for longer is, is also quite severe. Barat, it's great to catch up. We appreciate your time, sir. Come back soon, won't you? Barat Ramarutri there, the National Economic Council Deputy Director. This is a joy, and this is what it's all about. It's what Jonathan Farrell, Lisa Bramowitz, and I agree on. Stop and talk to smart people. Patricia Mosser is one of the most wonderful economists we have at Columbia, yes. A former New York Fed official, yes. But her heritage from Carl Case at Wellesley on to MIT and Blanchard and Fisher and on to her first-rate economics sets her up is truly someone with perspective on Jerome Powell and this Fed. Professor Moser, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. I want to go to MIT economics, which is the x-axis and the time continuum. What in God's name does transitory mean to someone that studied under Fisher and Blanchard? Well, uh, I was a central banker for a lot longer than I studied with Stan Fisher and Olivia Blanchard, so I'm going to answer that a little of both. Uh, transitory? Depends on the market and the circumstances. Macroeconomic transitory is a few quarters. Uh, financial market transitory is, if you're lucky, it's a couple of minutes, uh, but, you know, maybe a day or two tops. So um, I think it depends on the, the, the it depends on the circumstances. Um, from a monetary policy standpoint, if we're going to talk about the Fed, I, I, I think that it's a, uh, that anything that's transitory is something that they're looking at from a macro perspective, usually, unless they're explicitly talking about markets. And that means a quarter or two. And I, to the comment that, that was made a couple of minutes ago about looking through this, I think that's basically a, a simple banker's interpretation of what's happened in the last few months is the reason that um, uh, nearly everybody I know, and I certainly agree with this, think that this is good news. I mean, right. the, that's whole point is to get the economy growing faster, real interest rates up, 
inflation expectations up, and both of those things have happened. Uh, now, it's at the cost that, you know, it's not good news for if you're a fixed income investor, uh, but but otherwise, it's actually very you know, encouraging news from a macro standpoint. Stan Fisher stopped the Economic Club of New York a couple years ago with the discussion of the percentage move from low yields. Are you taken aback by the abruptness of the move in low yields to a higher point or even up to Folkert's Landau's 2.25 percent predicted this morning? So um, it was speedier than things that we've seen the last 10 years, 10, 12 years or so. But let me be blunt. Anybody who has uh, <laughs> thinks about what I call normal monetary policy, which is kind of before 2008, um, this is not ridiculously abrupt. It's actually kind of stereotypical behavior toward the second half of a recession. The yield curve gets steeper. The, the, the long end leads the short end out. Inflation expectations rise, real rates rise. And by the way, risk premia at the same time this is going, has been going on have actually gone down. I think high yield, high yield spreads have fallen like 40 basis points yeah. over this period. So this is not a sign of like tight credit and things going wrong, this is a sign of things going right. Right, but Patricia, there is a concern about whether we could see some sort of additional tantrum. I mean, Gens Nordvig of Exante was just on, and he was saying really it will hinge this week on whether the Fed gives guidance on how far they're willing to overshoot with inflation before they start to get nervous and start to talk about rate rises. And he said it's a big difference if it's 2.1% inflation or if it's 2.5%. Do you expect the Fed to give guidance, and what do you think the reaction could be? Yeah, I, I doubt that they're going to give that explicit guidance um, right now. Will they eventually have to do that? I think it's entirely possible that they're going to have to. And perhaps the way they'll give that guidance is through a series of speeches rather than through a formal agreement. Because based on history, my guess is that there's not complete agreement on the FOMC about how far uh, uh, amongst the, this particular set of members about exactly how far above two they will go. You know, transitory if it's truly transitory for a few quarters, this is what we're, um, uh, the, the, word, the, the word of the morning, yeah. um, uh, then I think they'd almost all agree that having transitory inflation at 2.5% for a while, if there are forecasts and there are excellent economic reasons to believe that's not going to last, um, like the reversal of supply shocks from a year ago, for example, um, then I don't think you're going to have a problem with the vast majority of the F1C members. They're going to say that's fine, particularly if it gets us from under one and a half to closer to 2% on a long run basis. That's, right. that's what they're after. Um, and more volatility, a little bit more, a little bit more volatility and in inflation is, is exactly what they're aiming for. I think that the question about whether there will be another tantrum is slightly different though. Um, it's not that the treasury market is completely immune from supply effects and there's going to be a lot of supply at treasury uh, uh obviously um there was going to be anyway but with the fiscal stimulus package there's going to be a lot and very occasionally rarely um and it's one reason it gets so much attention uh you can get real supply effects in the treasury market i call it the pig in the python problem um and uh of course dealers are uh, a lot healthier financial institutions than they were 12 years ago, but their balance sheets are also a bit less flexible and as a, as a result of the changes. And so I think the regulatory changes. And so given that, the odds of, this, uh, of having uh, a few bumps along the way and a little more volatility than we've had, yeah. I think it's high. Now, but honestly, 
there's been no volatility for 12 years. It's partly a, what everybody's expectations are, how fixed income markets should behave. Um, sorry to be a little bit, you know, old school about this, but, um, well, but uh, Patricia, I, I'm more worried about too much supply, like more than investors want. That's a very rare thing to happen in treasury markets. It hasn't happened since the 80s. Um, um, and I don't think it's very likely, but I, it's always a risk. And that's why I thought what Secretary Yellen said the other day about eventually uh, what, doing something when the economy is in better shape about uh, about the fiscal deficits is important. Well, but Sorry, I no, 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 no worries. I mean, these are all really important points. And it brings me to the Fed's balance sheet, the idea that we have the seven point six trillion dollar balance sheet. And there's a question of how much the Fed will operate as an absorb as an absorption tool, basically, for all of this supply. At what point will they essentially monetize the debt, buying the debt of the United States? And basically, it's a wash if they don't ever shrink their balance sheet. Do you think that they'll give guidance about how much they'll act in this capacity and continue to expand their balance? sheet, despite the incredibly easy monetary conditions that we've seen? So um, I don't think they're in a rush to get out of it, because one of the things I think that's very interesting is how uncertain everybody sort of thinks, OK, this is good news about inflation. But the uncertainty about medium term inflation is very high right now. Uh, honestly, COVID is a completely different kind of shock than we typically have. And so understanding what the implications are going to be for prices and wages two years out from now is incredibly difficult to do. And so I, that's one reason that I think they're going to be hesitant to give too much guidance because they don't want to give the impression they're going to, right now, this very minute, they don't want to give the impression they're going to pull back too soon. But they will give guidance. They, they did a pretty decent job of it when they, uh, um, not the taper tantrum in 2013, but after that they learned uh, and they did a pretty decent job and they're going to do this way ahead of time. And I don't think they're there yet because I don't think the economy is strong enough and inflation isn't where they want it to be. Um, uh, the one thing that I will say, um, though, about um, uh, the, the, the Fed's balance sheet is that from a dealer capacity standpoint, the Fed buying treasuries and creating reserves doesn't really help. It just sort of trades one kind of safe asset for a different kind of safe asset on the bank's balance sheets. Um, and it doesn't sort of solve the capacity problem, uh, the flexibility problem per se. Actually, I think what the bank regulators decide to do about the supplementary leverage ratio this month, yeah. I think they have to decide before the end of the month, maybe more important there. Something we'll focus on a little bit more in the days ahead. Professor, thanks for your time this morning. Just Patricia Moser there of Columbia yeah. University. An hour ago, we beat to death Ian Lingen of BMO Capital Markets. Abramowitz and Farrell absolutely killed the translation of its notes. Uh, he is head of U.S. rates at BMO Capital Markets, and Mr. Lingen joins us this morning. Ian, I make jokes about it, but it's not funny. It is a record issuance of debt. What is the distinction of this record issuance of debt? Well, I think that the real defining characteristic of what we're seeing at this moment in terms of new Treasury issuances, uh, it's not going to all be in the front end of the curve. The Treasury Secretary wants to term it out, so we're seeing more 30s, more 20s, more 10s, and it's coming at a moment where the Fed is content to characterize a backup in yields as a positive sign because it reflects an improving economic outlook and inflation expectations. There will be a point in which we look back at the higher rates we're seeing and say, wow, that was a great buying opportunity. 
the question in my mind is, is that 160 10-year yields or is it 175? And we'll get there, Ian, and I want to elaborate a little bit about how to know and what to even gauge out. But there's a question when we talk about all this supply. How much is the Fed buying? I mean, they've sucked up a substantial portion of this. Will they continue to absorb the U.S.'s ample and record debt uh, sales? Well, they won't be buying the entirety of net issuance. In fact, we're projecting somewhere around $1.8 trillion of net new issuance out of what's going into SOMA or at the Fed. So they, we will really need underwriters from different parts of the economy and different parts of the market and different parts of the world to uh, actually get the U.S. debt. So why do you think that Treasury yields are capped at 175 or that it becomes a buying opportunity there? Why not 2 percent, 2 and a quarter percent, which is what some houses are saying? I think at 175, we start to look at what's going on in the U.S. in terms of the Treasury market versus uh, what's going on in Europe, what's going on in Japan. And on a comparative on a comparative basis, we're already starting to look attractive. Another 15, 20 basis points, I suspect, will be the point where we start to see wobbles in risk assets and bring in those sideline buyers. But to be fair, I could certainly envision a situation where the Fed gives the green light to the bear re-steepening tomorrow, and we take a, a shot at a two-handle tins, and that would be a uh, I wow. think that would be a shock to the equity market. Ian, can you give us a game plan for the 20-year issue? Who actually buys the 20-year, and how much of a read across can you take from the 20-year issue today, just for the broader Treasury market? So the 20-year issue, obviously, it's a, a recent reintroduction to the benchmark. It has a set of natural buyers because it's the CTD for the uh, classic bond contract. And so there has been a, a, a solid bid. Auctions tend to tail slightly, but it's not a big foreign issue, unlike TINs, for example. So it's a, uh, it does have structural buyers. But as a read for what it means for the rest of the market, the only way that the 20-year auction matters this afternoon is if we get a repeat of what we saw at February 7, uh, 7th, which was a significant tail despite a reasonable concession. Do you think that should be ignored, though, Ian? Uh, at this stage, I think that there's plenty of underwriting demand. Uh, at some stage, if we continue to see supply indigestion comparable to the sevens, consistent tail versus the 1 p.m. Uh, win issue rate, that's going to merit a more significant repricing. That would be one of my biggest concerns in terms of how supply could yeah. truly reshape the uh, curve. Ian Lingen, you're the Bank of Montreal, and I know when this pandemic's over, they're going to drag you up to Montreal. You're going to go with the big shots to see the Canadians beat the Leafs, and someone's going to turn to you between the second and third period and say, look, my biggest fear is the foreigners don't show up. How do you answer the age-old question that the foreigners will not show up to buy United States full faith and credit paper? I think that the classic bond market adage that there's no such thing as a bad bond, just a bad price, is particularly apt in this context. People will show up to buy U.S. Treasuries. The question is, at what yield will they need to be enticed in from the sidelines? And that's what we're seeing defined as the 2020 outlook, excuse me, 2021 outlook continues to uh, brighten. Does Lisa go to ice hockey games? Is that what you're implying, Tom? The Lisa shows up to an ice hockey game and I'll see whether she the does. foreigners turn she, up. She I've been to hockey games. Have you? I've never yeah. been. What's really? it like? 
It depends where you are. If you're in uh, North Dakota, pretty exciting. It's always exciting. Actually, Rangers game is pretty exciting, too. Do you really want to have this conversation, John? I, I do. Ian, thank you. <laughs> it's just thrilling. It's good to catch up here. <laughs> Tom, she holds court in the boxes at Madison Square Garden. Oh. You can hear a pin drop when she starts in on I thought the Rangers were terrible. We get a briefing now, which has become extremely anticipated for all of our viewers and listeners. Amish Adalja is with John Hopkins Center for Health Security and has provided just immense, immense value to us. Amish, all of the media love the charts of cases. They're dramatic. They're emotional. They're the easily countable. The pros look at deaths and hospitalizations. When would you assume the public will finally shift onto your territory of deaths and hospitalization dynamics? I think they're already starting to, as they see that people get are getting vaccinated, as they don't hear about hospital capacity problems anymore, as they realize that nursing homes have been vaccinated. I think they're starting to understand that the concept really is not to get to COVID zero, but to tame the virus, to defang it so that it doesn't have the ability to cause serious disease, hospitalization and death. And I think they're going to get there because eventually that's all everybody's going to be looking at because that this is what this is what flattening the curve has always been about is being below hospital capacity and if you're in that position we're dealing with a very different virus than we were uh, a year ago and i think that it's going to take some time and the media is going to have to report more on on that than they are on on cases and it's going to be a shift but i think it, it is going to occur and it is starting to occur uh, doctor as more attention is drawn to that people will ask whether we can aggressively widen broaden the eligibility for vaccinations do you think we're at that point right now I do think we're starting to see states get broader. We've we've heard about we've heard about Alaska broadening. There's other states that are now broadening eligibility. It's just a question of being supply constrained right now, and the supply is going to get better each day. It gets a little bit better as as we get closer and closer to delivery dates for Pfizer, Moderna, for Johnson and Johnson for bigger amounts of, of this vaccine. So I do think it's going to be a point. Then we're just vaccinating and. Anybody that wants to be vaccinated, as the president said, uh, can make an appointment in May. And I think we're looking at, at summer, hopefully a little bit earlier than that late spring, where that can be the case, because that will really get things completely back on track and we'll see the clear trajectory out of this pandemic. Doctor, it, I'm it's all, already, very already sensing frustration among certain people, including myself, and I'll be very open about that. The idea that smokers in certain states have seemed to jump the line. A choice to smoke has given you the opportunity to get a vaccine before people have chosen not to smoke. What's the best way of dealing with these issues? You have to remember that the vaccine is about really decreasing, uh, decreasing the pressure on hospitals by vaccinating high-risk individuals. So when we look at this as a public health problem, they were trying to say, how can we stretch this vaccine supply the best so that our hospitals never get in trouble? So if you're a smoker, you're more likely to be hospitalized. So it's not any kind of personal approval of your behavior. It's just your behavior puts you at risk for severe disease. We're worried about hospital capacities. We're worried about ICU beds. So we're going to give you a vaccine so hospitals don't have to worry about you. That's how, that's how I put that. <clears throat> people Doc in the Dr. Adalja, in the meantime, over in Europe, you have a growing number of countries suspending the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. What's your view on the efficacy of this particular inoculation and whether it ought to be continued to be distributed? I think it should be continued to be distributed. We've seen tremendous success in the United Kingdom with this. It's actually approved in Canada as well. This is a vaccine uses innovative technology. I think they've had some difficulties with the EU, difficulties with dosing, and now there's been some reports of blood clots, but they're not above the background rate that you would expect in a population that's been vaccinated. Uh, 
And I think this is just one of those spurious associations because and people need to be explained that just because something happens after a vaccination doesn't mean that it's been well, caused by the vaccination. OK, we're going to stop the show. This is really, really important, Dr. Adalja. Are you telling us that the uproar in Europe nation to nation about the AstraZeneca vaccine is overdone or the uproar is off the mark or incorrect? All of the above. I don't think that this is justified. Uh, other countries like the UK have not suspended this. This, this association with blood clots, the, everyone has looked at the data so far and has said this doesn't look like it has a biological mechanism. It is not above the background rate of what you would expect in, in a population that big. And this is something you know we see with vaccines when you give them to large populations. Certain things happen and it doesn't mean it's caused by the vaccine. It's important to look, to understand and try and figure that out. But I don't think in the midst of a pandemic where people are dying, where Europe, many European countries are going into lockdowns, that a vaccine that's been proven to be highly effective in the United Kingdom should be suspended. I, I think it's the wrong decision. Doctor, we appreciate your time, your insight, your perspective, as always. Dr. Amos Shadalja there, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security Senior Scholar. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.